Welcome everyone to the future of health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria, bringing you the latest in healthcare and trends and news each week. And today we're joined by Ali Santori, Vice President of Government and Public Affairs for Providence St. Joseph Health. And we're going to be talking about the role of advocacy in health policy. And we're also going to look at the biggest health insurance program in the country. And it is probably not what you guys are thinking. Also joining us is Tressa Gerke, a marketing professional who was covered by Medicaid for about a year and a half. And she's going to be sharing her Medicaid story with us as well. So remember, Everyone, if you have any questions for our experts, please feel free to submit them via our Twitter handle or our Facebook page while we're live here today. And we can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. And you can use the hashtag Future of Health Friday. That's hashtag Future of Health Friday. And we look forward to hearing from you guys. We'll also be on the lookout for any and all of your questions. So let's get it started today by welcoming you both to the show, Allie and Tressa. Thank you so much for joining us today. So Allie, let's start with you. If you could just tell us a little bit about your role at Providence St. Joseph Health. Sure. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here. So I lead government affairs and advocacy across our seven state systems. So that includes all of our interface with seven different state legislatures and in Washington, D.C., where there's been a little bit going on as of late. Just a little bit. Yes. What does that mean, advocacy? What does it mean to be an advocate? So for us at Providence and for me and my work, being an advocate is being a voice for the voiceless, speaking for those who can't speak for themselves. At Providence St. Joseph Health, our mission is at the core of what we do, and that's to care for the poor and vulnerable. So for people who can't, who don't have the resources to meet with their senator or meet with their congressperson, we carry that message for them, uh, really in support of our communities. And for you personally, what has that journey been like, going out into the communities, getting you know these stories, meeting these people? What has that journey taught you about the state of social health and sort of where we are as a country? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had the privilege of, I worked on Capitol Hill, so I had everybody coming to me to advocate before I became an advocate myself. So I was able to see across hundreds of stakeholders, hundreds of healthcare providers, um, everybody came to me to tell their best of the best, to say, this is what we're doing, this is how we're helping our communities. And I was struck by Providence St. Joseph, it was Providence at the time, because they walk the walk, Providence walked the walk, uh, to care for the poor and vulnerable. And so when internally now when I've come to work for Providence um, and I see how much they care about their community and how the mission is at the core of everything that we do, I feel impassioned every day to get out of bed and speak for the communities that we serve in seven different states. Well, to touch on that, you mentioned that Providence St. Joseph Health is a not-for-profit healthcare system and, of course, those tenants they uphold. Is it okay for your organization to be involved in politics for, for example, like when I think of healthcare, I think of doctors and nurses in hospitals and, and a lot of paperwork, but, um, you know, not in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I, people ask me a lot why we advocate, and it comes down to the people that we serve. We are their voice. And not only is Providence St. Joseph Health made up of 113,000 doctors and nurses and scientists and researchers and caregivers, all of those people are advocates. I just get to be their storyteller, um, and I feel just so lucky to do the work that I do. Advocacy is at the very core of who we are as a not-for-profit organization um, and telling those stories of our community and helping those people. So advocacy, I think, comes hand-in-hand with who we are as an organization because we're not just hospitals. We are Mm -hmm. a true community partner to the people that we serve. How tough of a job is that for you? Can you tell I look exhausted? <laughs> it's exhausting. There's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done, um, and I think that that's what keeps us going. Our work is never done. Um, we've had some really significant success in protecting health insurance coverage for the poor and vulnerable um, through Medicaid, and that's been very exciting. But it's a very difficult job because there's a lot of misinformation out there right now. Well, you mentioned Medicaid. Most people, I think, recognize it as a government program, but. From there, I'm not sure that there's a lot of understanding for what it does. So if you could sort of define that for us, I know that Medicaid covers about 74 million people in the country, but I was also surprised to learn it's the biggest insurance country, the biggest insurance program in the country. 
I didn't know it was an insurance program. Right. And a lot of people don't know. Even I was a healthcare policy aide on Capitol Hill. And in my first meeting, I had to write on my hand, uh, Medicaid equals poor. But it's so much more than that. So Medicaid in itself is a lifeline for moms, babies, veterans, people suffering from mental health and substance abuse disorders. Um, But we call Medicaid something different in every state. Right. So in California, it's called Medi-Cal. In Washington state, it's called Apple Care. So a lot of people will say, oh, I'm not on Medicaid, but they actually are on Medicaid. So the program is really a lifeline, but there's so much misinformation out there about it. And there's also different prerequisites when it pertains to income, state versus state. Exactly. I mean, there's a saying, this is a lame healthcare joke, but if you've seen one Medicaid program, you've seen one Medicaid program, because every state is completely different in how they structure it. So the Medicaid program is really interesting because it's a, it's a state and federal partnership. So the federal government plays a large role in Medicaid, but the states play an incredibly influential role in who gets covered, what benefits they receive, and how the program is operationalized. That's a lot to keep track of. <laughs> That's a lot. I mean, how do you go from state to state, or are you focused on a certain region? For us, I think the key to our advocacy is finding good partners. So uh, we have good partners in each of our states so we can tailor our advocacy to that individual state program. At the very core of what we do is maintaining coverage for the over 70 million Americans who are covered by Medicaid. And that starts at the top. That starts in Washington, D.C. with educating our federal policymakers. Um, There has been a trend in D.C., which I think is fascinating, to bring people into D.C. into policymaking roles like our president who who have never served in government. So those people need education. They need to understand how these programs work and how people who elected them are impacted by these programs can you give him an education (laughs) i'm far smarter than me have tried (laughs) of course so ali who are the people that are covered by medicaid who gets to benefit from that insurance so medicaid over 50 percent of the babies born in this country are covered by medicaid so that's moms and babies right there Uh, one in ten veterans are covered by the medicaid program and the medicaid program is the number one provider of mental health and substance abuse uh, programs. So we are hearing so much about the opioid epidemic uh, in this country, and it's a little bit in uh, in Congress, in Congress, um, because Congress is so focused on solving the opioid epidemic, and yet there have been proposals after proposal to cut the Medicaid program, because people don't understand or make the connection that Medicaid is what is paying for addiction services. How do we get that message across? Because it does seem like Medicaid and Medicare are in danger. I mean, will they be around? First of all, will they be around in the next five to ten years? And and how do we preserve it? How do we get that message out that it is important? I think I mentioned there's a lot of misinformation. So I think arming people with the correct information about what the program is and not getting into the weeds about what it is in all 50 states but at its core, what it is, and that's a lifeline to moms, babies, people suffering from mental health issues, veterans. Um, In order to kind of combat this narrative that Medicaid is them, Medicaid does not impact me, doesn't impact my family, people with Medicaid just need to get a job, we launched the Many Faces of Medicaid campaign, which kicked off last October, to really put a face, a personal face, on who Medicaid is helping. The other thing that I think is so interesting about Medicaid that gets overlooked is that it's really an economic engine for the uh, country. We have, uh, there's a mom at Providence St. Joseph Health who used Medicaid in the first year of her daughter's life um, to get coverage. She said without that coverage, she would have dropped out of college. She's now a senior executive in nursing in Providence and has been able to give back so much to the community because Medicaid was that crucial lifeline. So really putting a personal face on the Medicaid program is so important. It is incredibly important. And one of the faces, as you mentioned, of Medicaid is here in the Dash studio with us. Tressa, thank you so much for joining us. So tell us how that came about. How did you get the coverage? Um, I was unemployed and looking for work at the time. And the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, had recently been passed. And so I had to, I had to find coverage somehow. And signed up for the Oregon Health Plan, which is Oregon's Medicaid program. And how long were you on the program for? I was on it for about a year to a year and a half, not too horribly long. I was able to secure employment and get my way out of 
of being covered on Medicaid. That's got to be a scary moment when you're searching for employment, as so many Americans are, and you're not having much luck, which is very common, and you don't have coverage. How much of a comfort was it for you to know that you could rely on this system? It was a huge comfort. I mean, it's terrifying to be out there not able to secure work. You're wondering, how am I going to pay for my mortgage or my rent? How am I going to put food on my table? How am I going to keep the lights on? And on top of that, then you have to go, well, where am I going to go if I get sick? So having that coverage meant the world to me because it meant that I could go to my doctor and at least know that that was covered. And it was through that process. I went to my doctor for something unrelated. And she said, well, you've, you've got diabetes, right? How's that going? And I said, well, I, I don't know. Nobody's really helped me with anything. So, so it led down a path to testing and to evaluation, and eventually to education. And I actually got treatment for my diabetes through Medicaid. Did you know that that was a pre-existing condition before you got the treatment? I did. It was just, I had a very disjointed diabetic journey. And to that point, no doctor had referred me to an endocrinologist or anything. So I figured it was fine. Turns out my diabetes was way out of control. And I needed to have medication. And so we had to go through the process of finding the right medication, finding the right dosage, you know, getting, I have injection phobia. So I had to find a specific type of needle that I could use so that I could inject myself because my roommate had to help me. So I had all these hurdles to overcome and I didn't even know that they were there, but because of the Medicaid coverage, I was able to get treatment and I got, a, I mean, just a world of resources opened up to me once this happened and it was amazing and I, I'm forever grateful to it. Wow. So you got the treatment you needed. You got the education you needed. You gained the awareness that you needed. I mean, that's got to be an incredible feeling. And to be able to be taken care of in a time of need when it seems that nothing else is kind of going in the right way. And it seems like there's also a bit of a social stigma of, oh, you're on Medicaid. Oh, you're just leeching off of society and, you know, you're not doing anything to better yourself. But that is so not the case. That's very true. And, you know, I have to admit that I, I had not knowingly, I say not knowingly, but I, I had not known anyone on Medicaid, at least not that I knew of. It's not like people go, hey, I'm on Medicaid. But, you know, that stigma does exist. And I have to admit that going on to Medicaid, I was like, oh, my God, I'm a leech on the system now. You know, <laughs> but that's not the truth. I just needed a hand for a while while I went through this rough patch. So in a way, it's, it's not any different than having your family and your friends surround you and say, how can we help? You know, let's, let's get through this together. It was kind of another piece to that puzzle. And it just made sure that when I was sick or when I needed treatment or, you know, with my diabetes journey, I had that helping hand there. What are you doing now in regards to Medicaid? Um, what am I doing now? Well, I'm educating people more. When I hear people say the typical um, myths about it, oh, well, they're just a leech on the system. I say, well, oh, so I was a leech when I was on it then? What do you mean you were on it? I mean, I was on Medicaid for a while. I mean, I needed help. And it's not what you think. And so, you know, we start a conversation. And I think so much change happens in these small, intimate conversations. That's not to say that the larger conversations aren't beneficial. But you can, you know, you can reach people on the large scale, but you can also reach them on the small scale, too. And to that point, Allie, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Do you feel that there is a bit of a pushback politically when it comes right now to the climate that we're in where, you know, it doesn't seem like we have this overreaching energy of wanting to help others that are not doing for themselves what certain people think that they should be doing to the level that they should be doing it, if that makes sense? Right. Well, I think that Tressa's story is so powerful because it demonstrates that Medicaid is not a handout. It's a lifeline. And what people also don't understand, by Tressa having that support, it impacts all of us. Because what would happen if her diabetes was untreated? It would. She would continue to defer receiving the care that she needed until it got to a breaking point or a crisis point, And then she would have to seek care in the most expensive setting. And all of us, we pay for that collectively. So people try to say, oh, you're on your own. But the fact of the matter is we're all in it together. So we need to be helping each other and spreading awareness about these important programs that bridge people to the next phase of their life when they can, you know, 
kind of move on from needing them. So I think that Tressa's story is so powerful in, in, in even the work that she's doing in just educating her friends and family because, yes, we can talk to senators. Yes, we can talk to the White House, but it's neighbors talking to neighbors. It's friends talking to friends and family members, and that's really what's going to destigmatize um, these myths around Medicaid and also to really show how we need to collectively help one another as a society. Absolutely. And you had mentioned the Many Faces of Medicaid website with stories like Tressa's. So can you talk about why Providence St. Joseph Health is such a strong voice for Medicaid? I mean, it seems that it goes right in line with all of the tenants that Providence St. Joseph Health upholds. Okay. So, well, as a, as a healthcare system, we lose money on Medicaid. We had almost a billion dollar shortfall on Medicaid. But we're not in Medicaid to make money. We're in Medicaid to serve and help people. That's why we support the Medicaid program. Um, The very people that we are charged to care for, um, children, babies, veterans, those with mental health issues, those are the people that are at the very core of who we are. So we are always going to fight for the Medicaid program. At Providence St. Joseph Health, we believe that health care is a basic human right fundamental to human dignity. So we will always fight for that. You guys will always fight for that. And that is very comforting to hear. But why should the average person fight for a program that is so confusing to understand? Yeah. And that's a great question. I think that when we, we talk a lot at Providence about the poor and the vulnerable as our mission um, is, but what's important to remember is that you can be, any of us can become vulnerable at any time. One accident. I just I just stepped the wrong way in Santa Monica three months ago and dislocated my kneecap and shattered the cartilage in my knee. I end up I end up having even with my health plan, my private commercial coverage health plan, I had thousands of dollars in medical bills. What if I wasn't able to pay those? What would happen? What would happen to my two children who needed me? They actually need me up and walking around. <laughs> That's sort of a bonus if you're a parent. <laughs> um, and so I think that. Everybody needs to understand that it's not them and that any of us, you know, it's not the other. Any of us can become vulnerable at any given time in our lives. Well, we're going to be talking much more about health policy in America with Ali Santori and also Tressa Gerke. Thank you so much. We will be right back. When I was young, I fell in love with used to old hands, man, that was enough yeah. Then we grew up, started to touch Used to kiss underneath the light on the back of the bush yeah. I know your daddy didn't like me much And he didn't believe me when I see you with a wall Every day, she found a way out of the window to sneak out late She used to meet me on the east side In the city with a sun all set And every day you know that we ride through the back streets of a blue Corvette I just wanna leave tonight We can go anywhere we want Drive down to the coast Jump in the sea Just take my hand and come with me, yeah We can do anything if you put a mind to it you take your whole life, then you put a line to it My love is yours if you're willing to take it Give me a heart, cause I'm gonna break it So come away, started today Starting to lie together in a different place We know that love is how all these ideas came to be And everything in between And then uh, suddenly We're 10, 23 And now we got pressure For taking the life more seriously We got a dead-end jobs And got bills to pay Have old friends And now our enemies And now I'm thinking back To when I was young Back to the day When I was falling in love He used to meet me on the east side In the city where the sun don't set And every day you know Where we ride Through the back streets In a blue Corvette And baby you know I just wanna leave Just came to be, so baby, run out Play with me, run out 
sun He used to meet me on the east side She used to meet me on the east side the city where the sun don't set Welcome back to Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm Julie Alexandria, and today we are talking with Ali Santori and Tressa Gerke about health policy. We're talking Medicaid. So, Tressa, in the break, you were telling me that there was just some sentiments that you thought really needed to be heard. I really just want to reiterate what Allie was saying about, you know, you never know when you're going to be the one who becomes the poor or the vulnerable. I mean, I had never, I had never been a recipient of, or I'd never been covered by Medicaid before. And I never thought that I was going to until it happened. And yes, my time was relatively short on the program, but I'm so grateful that I had that. It was kind of like, my safety net, you know, like if you're on a trapeze and you're going to fall, what's below me? I knew I had coverage and that really, it meant the world to me. And you just never know when your circumstances are going to change. We all like to think that, hey, I'm living this great life and everything's fantastic and Medicaid, I don't need to think about that. Not until you do. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a luxury for us here in America that we do have that and we do have that care and that safety net, as you mentioned. Now, Ellie, I want to talk about the mental health crisis, and I know that that is a point that is very, very important to Providence St. Joseph Health. So what are you guys doing to address that? Well, when Providence came together with Providence and St. Joseph Health came together in 2016, when we came together, we didn't want to come together just to become larger. We wanted to really make an impact in our communities, as I've discussed earlier with Medicaid. So we looked at what is the number one issue in all of our communities across seven states, 51 hospitals, um, and that number one issue, it was either one or two in every single community was mental health. So we're talking about communities as rural as Kodiak, Alaska, to communities as urban and dense as downtown Los Angeles here. Um, So that need was just so prevalent that we decided when Providence and St. Joseph Health came together to what we usually do is give you know, a little trinket or something to every employee that costs about $10. So instead of that, to commemorate the coming together, we put an investment into mental health. Um, so we put a $100 million into well-being trust um, to really tackle the issues, some key issues around mental health. And those include um, destigmatization, because mental health certainly suffer, suffers from the stigma issues. Um, people fear um, asking for help when it comes to mental health issues. Um, severe trauma and resiliency, uh, just regular depression that can impact any of us. Um, really extreme, um, you know, psychiatric issues is also a focus. And then resiliency in children was another focus. And so through our partnership with Wellbeing Trust, we've really been able to raise the awareness around, um, around mental health issues in some of these core areas. And the work that I do, we are working really closely in our state legislatures and in D.C. to advance some key mental health priorities to really break down the barriers between mental health and physical health. I mean, what I always like to say is the head's head's a part of the body too, right? So we need to treat those in the same way and not separate how we care for for ourselves emotionally and physically, which right now there are too many laws and policies that keep that care separate. Right. Well, I was just going to ask you in D.C., and and let's just use that as an example, what is the reaction when you try to marry those two? Because I know it's very easy to see a malady when it's physical, when it's on the outside, but it's not as easy to determine exactly the severity when you can't see it. So what is sort of the reaction or the pushback or maybe the embracement of Embracing. Embracing. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) What is the reaction that you get on Capitol Hill when you do try to marry those two of the head and the heart and sort of from what's outside and and what you can see versus the mental health side of things? Right. I think that they, I think that there's traction. They get it because mental health impacts everyone. So a lot of these policymakers, they have someone in their family that has struggled with mental health or addiction issues. So they understand that. The problem with our U.S. healthcare system is how long do you have in the show? (laughs) Julie, number one. But the problem on this issue is that it, it, it costs money and systems change is slow and it's expensive. So there needs to be an investment up front so we can break down these silos where mental health is treated one way 
and physical health is treated another way. So we people get the issue, but we need to really get them on board with the investment in that integration. It sounds like a really tough job to have to convince lawmakers and policymakers that this really is some of utmost importance. And you mentioned that, sure, they can have a personal connection with that, but it seems a bit of an uphill battle. Exactly. And, and, and I am very aware of what I don't know and my own limitations. So that's when I partner with our incredible um, army of caregivers and uh, clinical professionals at Providence St. Joseph Health. So um, what we like to do is we do pilgrimages to D.C. You know, the Sisters of Providence went on pilgrimages. The Sisters of St. Joseph went on pilgrimages. Well, they came west. Yeah, you guys are going west. east. We go east. Okay. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so we, we bring clinicians who are at the bedside who see these patients firsthand who see these, you know, adolescents who are having um, psychiatric trauma trauma issues, um, and we bring them to tell that story and to really point out the solutions. I can only do so much. I'm a storyteller for the organization, and I stand on the shoulders of the great work that all the clinicians and caregivers and leaders at Providence do, but it's most effective when policymakers can hear from the people on the front lines. Absolutely. Ali Santori, we will be right back with much more here on Future of Health. Summer after high school when we first met We make out in your Mustang to Radiohead And on my 18th birthday we got matching tattoos Used to steal your parents' liquor and climb to the roof Talk about a future like we had a clue Never planned that one day
back to Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm Julie Alexandria. You're listening to Dash Radio, and I'm here with Ali Santori, and we're talking about healthcare policy in America. And Ali, just listening to your day-to-day and your job, it just seems really, really tough. Well, you know, we really, and I try to take the long view because the work that I have to do and, and actually have a privilege to do, I'm really just standing on the shoulders of the Sisters of Providence and the Sisters of St. Joseph. They came to the West um, in this pioneering spirit. Uh, the Sisters of Providence, Providence, the corporate tax ID in Washington State is two. So right when they got to Washington State, they didn't plan to, start, to, set, uh, to set up a hospital network. That wasn't their plan. Their plan was to look at the community and see what was needed. When the sisters arrived in Vancouver, Washington in the 1850s, the needs were mental health, children, and care for the elderly. And interestingly, Julie, 160 years later, our focus has not changed. Same. I was just going to say, it's the same thing. We're looking at the same issues. Yeah. So we, I am inspired by that every single day because the sisters were advocates. The sisters were advocates at heart. Uh, And I have the privilege to carry on the work that they started. Of all the tenants, which one, if you can pick one, which one is the most important or closest to your heart for you? Oh, my gosh, that's so hard. There are so many amazing things that we do. I think for myself, because I'm a a mom of two little kids, uh, two little girls, I think that the work that we do to protect children, so children who are covered by Medicaid, again, 50% of the babies in this country are born on Medicaid, uh, we do incredible work across the system to reduce human trafficking, um, especially for young girls. I'm certainly passionate about that. Um, any of the work that we do that helps children have a better life, that's the work that I'm most passionate about. Well, from children to the life cycle to the elderly, I want to talk about the elderly and advanced life care and the conversations that the elderly can have with their doctors. Where do you stand on that? Julie, this is such a good point because we were talking about misinformation earlier, and I think that this area is an area where there is more misinformation than almost anything else in healthcare. An interesting story, um, it, back when we were when the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was uh, being drafted in 2009, um, Providence has always been a supporter of what is called advanced care planning. And people say, what the heck is that? Advanced care planning is the ability for any of us to talk with our doctor about what our preferences, values, and wishes are at the end of our life. So for me, I really want to be making that decision myself at the end of my life. I don't want anyone else to be making that. Doctors, clinicians, anyone else, right? Fair enough. Absolutely, but can you? Is that even an option? Well, it is an option, but people people don't feel comfortable having those conversations. So when we were working to actually reimburse physicians for having these conversations with patients and that's just sitting down and saying hey what do you want at the end of your life how do you want your care to be because when you're very sick when you're in an acute really traumatic experience for you and your family that's not the time to have that conversation right I mean other than a DNR Right. What else are we talking about? What are the other options? So things like an advanced directive. um, There are things called PULSE, which is a physician order for life-sustaining treatment um, that some states have. And what happened was when when we were fighting for this, um, those are sort of outcomes of those conversations. But you need to start the conversation with a physician because people don't just sit down and say, whoops, this is what I want at the end of my life, done. It's, it's It's a really serious conversation. So what happened was when we were writing this into the Affordable Care Act, which it was successfully included in the first version of the Affordable Care Act, um, the whole debate over death panels, it was called a death panel, blew up. And that was actually a Providence initiative that was supported by Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who is from Oregon, who has been absolutely incredible on this issue. A huge shout out to him, um, has taken the mountain on this um, in so many ways. Um, So Providence worked with Congressman Blumenauer to get that provision in the Affordable Care Act in the first version. And then there was the whole death panel controversy that the government was going to appoint a panel of experts to decide when people live and when people die. Sounds reasonable, right? Well, there's a big difference between talking about the kind of care an individual patient would like to receive and when their expiration date is. Right, exactly. And that's, I mean, I think at the very core of what we do is, is, is arming people with 
the education and information that they need to fight through this misinformation because it's really about personal uh, choice and patient empowerment at the end of the day. Whatever happened with the death panels? What was the future of that? Well, excitingly, so no death panels, but the policy itself was actually enacted by the Obama administration. It was taken out of the Affordable Care Act, but the policy itself, which is called Advanced Care Planning Codes, this fun healthcare talk, reimbursement codes, they were actually enacted by the Obama administration. So very excitingly, now physicians are encouraged to talk to patients about their wishes, patients' own wishes. Is that still a holdover from Obamacare? Yep. Well, so we still so have it was, that. It was done separately outside of Obamacare, um, but it was originated through the Obamacare conversations. So this is something that any patient can bring up. Correct. With I mean, their this doctor. is limited to the Medicare program. So Medicare is 65 and older mm-hmm. um, that physicians are actually reimbursed for that conversation. But yes, any, pa- any patient should and can bring that up with their physicians. But this was especially focused on the Medicare population because they're closer to the end of their journey. Mm-hmm. And does that include medication? Does that include location? Does that What sort of is covered in that conversation? You know, I think that it, it it's pretty open between the patient and the doctor. It's two 30-minute conversations, and the, it's really patient-led for what how specific they want to be, and then the doctor can point out the tools where they need to document that. Another thing that we've done, too, across Providence, led by Dr. I.R. Biok at the Institute for Human Caring, um, in in Torrance, um, is make the patient's wishes readily accessible within the medical record, within the electronic medical record. Because in a lot of different ways, you can have a patient's wishes documented somewhere over here, somewhere over here. But when things are really, really at an acute situation at the end of someone's life, if there isn't a clear and consistent way to access that information, it doesn't matter if it existed or not. So um, through Dr. Biox's work across Providence, we've done a ton of work to really streamline um, and make consistent where those wishes are found in the electronic medical record, which seems like a no-brainer, but when you have over a million patients on Epic, you want that information all in the same place. Is hospice care covered under Medicaid? Yes, there's a hospice benefit under under Medicaid. So there, it's always open for debate, you know, how it should be structured and, and modernized. But yes, there is a hospice benefit covered under, under Medicare. Is part of your job as an advocate to relay the needs of the constituents to the lawmakers? Absolutely. So we have about 113,000, we call them caregivers, who work for Providence St. Joseph Health. Um, and in a lot of our states and communities, we are the largest employer. So congressmen and senators, they, they want to hear from us. They want to know how policies will impact uh, their constituents. Many of them work for the Providence system. So as I mentioned before, I'm only one voice. I can only do so much. I'm actually very limited in what I can do. Uh, so I, I, what we've done at Providence is created channels through our grassroots tool that allows our caregivers, all 113,000 of them, to weigh in on behalf of issues that they are passionate about that support uh, the direction and mission of the organization. So for example, uh, during the Affordable Care Act repeal debate last summer, uh, we opened up our grassroots uh, channel to all 113,000 caregivers. And in two days, two days, we had 10,000 emails go in, 10,000 emails that really allowed our caregivers to stand up for what they believed in and gave them a channel to do that and a platform to do that. Um, so the so we also, I kind of see my work as a bridge to really bring that message from the community, from the constituents to the policymaker. And the grassroots tool allowed, it, allowed us to do that in a really incredible way. Who else is Providence St. Joseph partnering with in this? Oh my goodness. Well, we had such, it was an all hands on deck effort. So the Catholic Health Association was absolutely uh, phenomenal in, in their work with us. Um, we worked very closely with them with the American Hospital Association, um, with the health insurance plans. I mean, really, uh, there was an all-hands-on-deck effort to save the coverage gains that were made by the Affordable Care Act. Whether or not you agree with Obamacare or not, um, really, people put a lot of partisan politics aside to save health care coverage for 30 million people, which was in jeopardy uh, last summer. So, Um, Our grassroots tool is called Phone to Action. Um, It's an incredible tool that is so user-friendly. And I've had emails from caregivers from all the way from Alaska to uh, Montana to California saying thank you so much for making it so easy for me to have my voice heard. 
and that's why I'm, we're here. Absolutely. Well, where can people find out more information on that? Well, you know, we are about to launch um, an advocacy hub um, on psjh.org coming soon. And there will be a direct link there to our grassroots tool if we have a campaign open. That was a national campaign to weigh in with the federal government. Uh, but we also have statewide campaigns going on for issues that really impact people in their backyards. So more to come on that soon. And more to come on Future of Health with Ali Santori. We will be right back. Bless them when there ain't no stress, and this one is straight for the girl, them. Enrique Iglesias, alongside, into the zona. They say me. Get the girl, them, into the zona. Give them the big moan. Shine up all of me, they are what we tell them for the church. Locking in just like that. The girl, them, them move on track. Shine up all of me, they are. Enrique, sing to them. Three. You look at me and go, you take me to another place. Says, come and take me. Baby girl. Got me begging, got me hoping that the night don't stop. to Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health on Dash Radio. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria, and I am here with Ali Santori, and we're talking about healthcare policy in America. And I want to share with you guys a clip from musician Dizzy Wright and his personal experience with Medicaid that he shares. Take a listen. I needed it bad. Um, or I just don't think I would have been able to see at all. I got hit in the eye with a penny from a slingshot mm. when I was... Um, eight years old or nine years old, okay. and um, they they told me I was legally blind. At the age of eight. Wow. Yeah, eight. They told me I was legally blind. I was like, what? <laughs> no, but um, you know, I had to go through all these laser treatments and like all these different things for my eyes to like get my eyes right and stuff like that. 
And um, I think just being on Medicaid, uh, you know, really helped my mom, you know, because there's no way she would have been able to afford it. That was musician Dizzy Wright talking about his personal experience with Medicaid. And, you know, he brings up a really interesting and kind of blatant point, Allie, right? I mean, why would anyone in their right mind want to cancel Medicaid? Yeah, and that's a great question. It comes down to simply cost. The healthcare costs in the United States right now, uh, the majority of those borne by the federal government are unsustainable. So somebody right now, the United States is spending about $10,500 per person, every single person who lives uh, in the United States on healthcare. Um, healthcare costs are rising at an unsustainable rate for the government. Um, you know, right now, healthcare costs are about 18% of our gross, gross domestic product. That's going to continue to grow. We have 10,000 baby boomers aging into the Medicare population every day. That is not sustainable. I mean, in by the time we get to 2030, the United States is going to be a health insurance company with an army because that's all it's going to be because that is what's going to take up all of our costs. So there really is an effort on cost savings around health care. Now, the issue is, is that Medicaid, cutting Medicaid is easier than cutting Medicare because just frankly, Medicare beneficiaries vote. They vote in elections. So politicians are really, really hesitant to cut Medicare because there's a very, very vocal constituency for Medicare. Um, because Medicaid serves the poor and vulnerable, they have not been as vocal. They're, they're busy trying to survive, right? Right. So we are trying to be that voice. We are trying to be that voice to say, no, this program is equally as important. Now, as I said, costs are unsustainable. So we support some you know, modernization of the program. We support flexibility of the program, that sort of thing. The program was uh, passed in 1965 is when the Medicaid program started. Um, there certainly needs to be some modernization from 1965, and we support that. But the short-term cut in costs will not be worth the long-term costs by not covering these people. As with Tressa's story, you saw that would end up costing, her situation would end up costing, um, there'd be a cost shift to all of us to kind of pay for that unaccessed care when it was too late. Well, let's break it down for everyone, and we're going to put it out there to social media. I'm going to answer a few of your questions here that we have coming in. Tyler on Facebook wants to know, what is Medicaid versus Medicare versus Obamacare? And this is something we've been talking about all evening, but I want to address it and I want to get it out there once and for all. If you can go down the line and tell us the difference between each. Medicaid is a program that was created by the federal government, but that is actually administered by the states. And it helps low-income individuals or people with disabilities receive health care coverage. The Medicare program is a federal government program for those 65 and older. So that's age. Every, anyone 65 and older is eligible for Medicare. Um, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, is uh, the health insurance uh, reform. I call it health insurance reform law. That was passed March 23rd, 2010. I have a weird memory for dates. Um, and that really, really expanded protections for individuals to uh, obtain private health insurance coverage. So it did that. And it also expanded the Medicaid program to a little higher eligibility um, cohort of individuals. So under the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, about 25 million people received health care coverage who did not previously have it. And we are opening up our conference here to Twitter and Facebook and social media. So if you guys want to write in, let us know. We can answer your questions. You can find us on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. So send in your questions. And while we're waiting for more questions, I'm going to read this one from Aubrey via Twitter. Asks, how do you know if you can qualify for Medicaid? That's a great question. Every program is different in every state. So I would suggest you go to your state Medicaid program because every state has different requirements. So if you go to whatever your state Medicaid program is, um, and then you can read up on eligibility requirements because they vary from state to state. And Dan on Twitter asks, how does a big company like yours make an impact in Congress and legislation? I think by really, we talked about the grassroots tool, by really providing that platform uh, to, to raise the voice of the uh, people that serve at Providence St. Joseph Health. So um, by being a large employer, 
by having a platform where people can really share what they're passionate about, that's how we make a difference. And I have a question from you. So this is from me to you, Allie. If you could wave your magic wand and cure or solve one issue when it comes to social health and caring for communities, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, what would it be? I would break down, totally eliminate the stigma around Medicaid and bring everybody to the table and say, how do we best structure this program to serve the people who really need it? And that's, as I mentioned before, my passion is children especially, um, but the Medicaid program really, really serves so many vulnerable populations. I think that if you can really ensure the sustainability of the Medicaid program, um, then you've been successful. Well, we want to hear from you guys. If you have a Medicaid story to share, you can tell it to us online at psjhealth.org forward slash faces of Medicaid forward slash share. And Allie, this is what you were talking to us about, the faces of Medicaid. So we want to put it out there. We want to hear from you guys. Thank you so much, Allie and Tressa. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us today and telling your stories and Tressa for sharing your experience. And thank you to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to next week's topic, Caring for the Poor and Vulnerable Communities, where we'll be joined by Joel Gilbertson and Rosie Perez from Providence St. Joseph Health. And make sure to follow us at Providence St. Joseph Health on social media PSJH on Twitter and Instagram and Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. If you missed any part of the show, do not worry. You can always replay it on Dash Radio and you can share it with your friends. Allie, thank you so much. Tressa, thank you so much for being here. I'm Julie Alexandria. This is Dash Radio. We'll see you next time.